Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Decades before Salem, Connecticut was home to the first witch trials recorded in U.S. history. In the mid-1600s, dozens of women and some men connected to them were accused of witchcraft in colonial Connecticut. Eleven people were executed. Coming up, we'll hear from a local historian who discovered evidence that witch accusations continued through the 1700s around where we live. But first, earlier this year, the state officially cleared the names of accused witches in Connecticut and issued an apology. The resolution followed panel discussions and hearings with lawmakers, descendants of the accused, and local historians. The legislative effort was led by State Senator and Dr. Saud Anwar and State State Representative Jane Garibay. Representative Garibay is from Windsor, where the first person accused of witchcraft in colonial America lived. Let's take a listen to some of those early discussions. First up, we have Beth Caruso, who is a Connecticut historian and author who has written several books on the colonial witch trials, and she explained how this all began. Alice Young was the very first person convicted and hanged for witchcraft in the American colonies. She was the spark that started the witch hunts in New England. Alice Young was living in Windsor, Connecticut in 1647 when she was accused of witchcraft. What happened was there was an influenza epidemic that went through town. And through research, um, Kathy Hermes and I discovered that Alice Young was living right next door to a family that lost four children in that epidemic. Alice Young had one child, so that brought her under suspicion um, because it was expected that every good woman be fertile, and she only had one child. So that one child lived while these others died. In addition to that, the town minister lost two children in that epidemic. The town doctor lost a child, and there were people on the legislator that lost children too. Another strike against Alice was we do have some educated speculation that she was a healer. And um, because of that, she may also have been a target. Beth also said that witch accusations were deeply rooted in misogyny, though some men were tried and executed. Let's take another listen here. It's actually a huge factor. Um, I mentioned it with Alice Young. Fertility was a huge thing back in the day. You had the role of women was to be fertile, take care of the children, both for um, religion, they were saying be fruitful and multiply at the pulpits, but we have to understand it was also extremely political in those days too. 
um, they were trying to build their population and overcome native populations and the Dutch population. So if you didn't fall under that criteria of being a good woman, being fertile, and that also included being a submissive woman, if you spoke your mind, if you were outside of that little box, you could be targeted. The fact also that there, the two men who were hanged, they were connected to women and more women across the board were accused, convicted, indicted, and hanged. Um, and the test that they had to endure to prove, uh, again, quotes, they were a witch, uh, no man had to endure. You know, so absolutely, misogyny ran through it. Misogyny also came up in the testimony of Catherine Carmen during a Judiciary Committee hearing. Here she is. Today, I'm sitting in front of you as a 14-year-old girl, as a resident of Windsor, but most importantly, as a civilian demanding the long overdue formal recognition of the reality of these victims' characters. They were not witches, they just didn't conform to the beliefs of the time. When I was first approached to speak in front of you and I was informed of Miss Young's and Miss Gilbert's stories, I was shocked to discover that these women still have not been exonerated. Then I thought of the constant pattern of our country's arrogance to women throughout history. Misogyny is in our country's blood. It, has, it runs through, through the veins of our most supreme leaders, through the walls of our capital. It is not too late to change that. By acknowledging your predecessors' wrongdoings, although you will not be able to rewrite history, you will be able to make a new ending, one you should be proud of. Carmen went on to field several questions from lawmakers, some skeptical. She reflected on that experience a few weeks later. One of the questions that I remember being frequently asked was, why now? And my answer was, why not now? I feel like we've waited so long already, I don't understand. We know, we know our, our state has done wrong. We know we can acknowledge it. We have the resources, we have the power, we have the time. So I really don't see a better, a better time than now. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, why is this such an issue that it's taken 300 years? It's 300 years. We should be ashamed of that, and we should use that as a fueling to get this done quicker and to really pass this through. And I think me being a youthful, a young person and standing up for what I believe in and acknowledging I'm from this town, and this, this does affect people, and this affects our generations. Obviously, if you have a 14-year-old girl standing up there getting grilled by some people, <laughs> I think that... Being asked those questions really just proved the importance of the issue and being able to answer those questions and to have a rebuttal and to have disagreements and to be able to word those disagreements really opened the eyes of some people and hopefully convinced them to push this along, keep it going, and make progress however we can. Again, that was 14-year-old Windsor resident Catherine Carmen at a panel discussion about witch trial exoneration in March. Two months later, the state voted 33 to 1 to absolve those accused of witchcraft in the state. Coming up, we'll hear from Sarah Jack. She's a co-founder of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project and, as of last week, the Massachusetts Witch Hunt Justice Project. For our listeners, does this chapter of Connecticut history conjure up anything for you? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're digging into efforts to clear the names of those accused in colonial witch trials. Massachusetts exonerated several people in 2022, and this May, Connecticut issued a sweeping apology absolving those accused here. And joining us now to discuss this decision and her hope that Massachusetts follow suits is Sarah Jack. She's the co-founder of the Witch Trial Exonera- Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project, and she's also the co-host of Thou Shall Not Suffer, the Witch Trial Podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me back. And with us in studio is Dr. Catherine Hermes. She's a historian, author, and the publisher and executive director of the Connecticut Explored magazine. And she's also the professor emeritus for Central Connecticut State University. Thank you so much, Kathy, for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. And for our callers, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Sarah, I want to start with you first. And we've been hearing sort of a buildup of background in terms of what led up to the resolution and which led to an ultimate uh, approval during the last general session. Now, what was your reaction to the resolution? Was this a win for you? Absolutely. The conversations around witch trials are growing, and this was a really big part of that, watching the timeline of when we first started talking about it with politicians, watching it go through the House and then to the Senate and seeing that last vote pass with just one nay was so, so wonderful. And we've been avoid using the word exonerate this hour just because um, Hearst, Connecticut had put it a distinctly Connecticut-esque controversy over the word. They also reported that Republican lawmakers objected to the notion that Connecticut could exonerate verdicts reached under uh, British colonial rule, and the ruling used the term absolved. So can you talk about this choice to say absolved instead? You know, what's the significance here? Sarah, are you there? Yes. Yes, I am. From a descendant standpoint, I was looking for a formal apology and an acknowledgement that my ancestor and those hanged in Connecticut were innocent of covenanting with the devil. Um, Exoneration is a real buzzword. You have to, it's something that not only 
the legislators were concerned with using, but just on social media, if you tie the word exoneration to an accused witch, you have to specify if they were indicted, if they were arrested, if they were convicted. It's not a word that, it's a word that you use to get everyone's attention, but there hasn't been, it's been slippery. What word do we want to use to say this history needs justice? And Kathleen, early American legal history is a major part of your expertise, and we often talk about the importance of language. So you know, what are your thoughts about this word choice? Well, I do think exoneration was the proper term. Um, absolution is something I tend to think of as with um, religious absolution, right, the forgiveness of sins, and these women didn't do anything wrong. Um, absolution is a word that is used in the law very rarely. Um, but I also want to remark on the idea that somehow it wasn't under the power of the legislature to undo something done by a British colonial government. Because in 1662, when John Winthrop Jr. brought the charter to Connecticut that united the New Haven and Connecticut colonies, um, that charter remained in place throughout the Revolutionary War. We governed Connecticut under that charter until 1818. So it is a continuous government and certainly had the, the legislature certainly had the ability to exonerate if they wanted to. And the, Kathy, we also just heard from 14-year-old Catherine Carmen describe getting grilled by some of the lawmakers at a Judiciary Committee hearing. And one lawmaker asked, you know, how sure are we really that witchcraft wasn't being practiced? And you've described the evidence as that they provided as spectral and supernatural, and because of that, uh, faulty. It's faulty and legally improper. So, can you touch on that line of questioning? You know, what was going through your mind when you were listening to it? The the question about actual innocence was a little surprising. Most historians agree that none of the women were even thinking that they were practicing witchcraft. So it. Whether you think people can practice witchcraft is another question, but these women were by and large congregationalists. Many of them were actually church members, meaning that they had owned the covenant and were part of the elect. And so the idea that they thought they were consorting with the devil is almost absurd. Um, but, you know, I understand people don't know the history and haven't always read um, deeply about it. So with the evidence that was presented, much of it was spectral, meaning that people said that a specter of a woman would come and, for example, sit on their chest and torture them in some way in the night. And these were uncorroborated statements. So when John Winthrop Jr. returned with the charter and found the witch panic going on in Hartford in 1663, he put a stop to this, mandating a two-witness rule where any evidence that was presented had to be corroborated. And so that kind of ended the spectral evidence, and it ended the executions. And Sarah, you were also at the hearing and grilled a bit about the negative impacts these accusations have on descendants. And we know that descendants of the accused and the accusers have spoke. Can you touch on this sort of legacy of harm? Yeah. Those questions were difficult for a descendant because why else have I traveled and 
studied and used my voice through social media and any conversation I can have to find out what is there to know about this history and how can we get people to look at it? Um, they don't, they didn't want to hear that descendants today were affected by it, but it's not just the descendants and the accusers um, generations later. It's all of our, it's all of us. It's the community who doesn't understand the history and it's the, it's the misunderstanding of what witchcraft was then. What is it now? It's a continued cover-up of women's place in society and how they were punished. And you were at the hearing as a descendant, right? I was there, yes. And you were the descendant? Yes. I, I was asked how it affects me today. Did it make it difficult for me to get a job? Um, why would I care that this happened? And that is just a very clearly misogynistic point of view to ask to ask those kinds of things. And those weren't the things we wanted to be able to say that day. We wanted to talk about the bill and the stories of those women and our ancestors. Yes, how they suffered, but why it is important to acknowledge that suffering today so that we don't repeat the same mistakes, so that we understand that no one should be marginalized like that and treated that way. And they didn't want to hear us speak to that. Right. And also just to clarify, too, that Sarah Jack is a descendant of Winifred Benham Sr., one of the accused witches. And so, Kathy, what are your thoughts with what Sarah just had to say here? I, I think the descendant testimony was really important because, you know, nowadays we might think, oh, it's cool to have an accused witch in our ancestry or, you know, like in Australia to have a convict in the family. But it was a source of shame generation after generation. And it wasn't sort of until I think maybe the 1990s that people began to kind of embrace those ancestors. Most of the time, people hung their heads and didn't talk about it. And growing up, a lot of descendants would have imbibed that sense of shame from their parents and grandparents. It's interesting that you mentioned convict because a, a good friend of mine recently discovered that one of her great, great, great uncles was a highway robbery. And in the beginning, we're like, oh, that does seem kind of cool, but we actually don't know what the ramifications <laughs> right. are there. Right. And, you know, as we as we, we we're going to dig into more of the sort of intergenerational trauma as we talk about this. But um, you mentioned descendants of accusers carrying the shame. You know, it's still very much it's it's very historical, but it's very new. We're having this conversation today for that exact reason. And we also often mention uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's name change as an example of this. So can you talk right. about that? Sure. So Hawthorne's ancestor was one of the judges in the Salem witch trials, and his name was spelled Hathorne, you know, so minus the W. And Nathaniel Hawthorne changed the spelling of his name to indicate a separation from that ancestry. So interesting that he went off and wrote The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and The House of the Seven Gables, where a family is cursed because of their association you know, with the trials. And, and I think that uh, Hawthorne's work really speaks to trying to understand the point of view of the accused rather than the accusers. Right, and then so we're talking about their various points of views and it was a it was a different kind of world a little bit you know 
back in that time. Can you give us a glimpse into this puritanical world? You know, we may not have a lot of, you know, paper records of it, but we know that they were extremely litigious. They were extremely litigious. <laughs> it's, it's incredible how much they sued one another. But I think they used lawsuits in a way as a mediating tool in disputes. And Puritans loved to argue. Um, Roger Williams, who you may remember was banished from Massachusetts, said that he loved living in such disputing times. And, and I think this tendency towards argument was really about trying to find the truth, um, at least for many people. So, of course, some people engage in argument just because they're um, combative. But, um, but I think there was a sense of trying to find truth. The problem was, of course, there was a long history of doubting women and being suspicious of women's religiosity, especially if it became emotional. And I think we see um, we see in these witchcraft accusations um, doubt towards women's spirituality and perhaps skepticism about the genuineness of it. And so I think we, we got a lot of oral history. We got a lot of sort of history through literature as well. And there weren't a lot of you know, court documents per se for you to lean on. So what kind of source materials are there out there? Well, court documents have proved valuable, but as you say, they're scarce. Um, so some of the things that we found um, were records in diaries. It's Matthew Grant's diary that tells us about um, Alice Young, John Winthrop's journal that he kept that tells us about Alice Young. Um, but there aren't all that many diary entries. So depositions are at the core of what we know about witchcraft um, beliefs as well as, of course, treatises that were published by so-called witch experts. Um, one of the things I found in the magazine uh, article that we published, I found a deposition by a young woman in 1716. It's in a lawsuit for debt. A doctor, Alexander Williamson, sued Samuel Howard to pay his medical bills. And in the documents for this case, is Susanna's testimony that the doctor told her that he was a witch and practiced magic. And we'll definitely be getting into more of the historical background, too, um, as we continue this conversation. Uh, earlier, Beth Caruso, uh, or during her testimony, she mentioned gossip. And that was also a defining feature of the earlier um, colonial Puritan culture, it sounds like. Is that the case? And, and what does that look like? What did that look like? Yeah, gossip was a big problem. And some of the witchcraft accusations we know about never got to the criminal stage, but they were, we in fact learned about them through slander cases, where the woman who's being accused of witchcraft says, my neighbors said this. And there are many in the 17th century, but we also found a case in 1742. Sarah Morin, who's the archivist at the Connecticut State Library and who's digitizing the New Haven County court records, found the case of Elizabeth Gould, a woman who lived in North Guilford, whose neighbor, Mr. Chittenden, said that she was a witch. And as I referenced earlier, he references spectral evidence. He says she came to him in the night and knelt upon his breast and caused him to bleed 
from the mouth. And, you know, it's very graphic. It's sexualized. Elizabeth Gould was in her 70s when she was accused of this. And she sued for slander and told the court that her reputation had been ruined and her neighbors would not associate with her. And as we're talking about this sort of, I guess, in contemporary times, was anything of this shocking to you, especially since we just went through, you know, a legislative resolution approval and we're talking about history from it's such a long time ago, but we are getting a glimpse of of that being very real still today, right? I think so. I mean, one of the things that we see with these 18th century cases is that the belief in witchcraft didn't just die with the end of the witch trials and executions in the 17th century. And although we may not have the the stigma of witchcraft leveled at women today, um, we do find that women are attacked uh, for being women or being – now it might be being too outspoken um, or it might be because they've had an abortion or some other characteristic of women that gets targeted. And social media can be a tool for bullying both for men and women. Um, and I think it's used in similar ways to what they did in court back in the 17th and 18th centuries. And Sarah, you've been listening to this conversation. Anything that you'd like to add here? Um, I just, the, you know, the conversation around the history is such an important piece. And one of the things that I found frustrating at that first hearing was I thought we were going to have engaging conversations like this, formal, because it's a hearing. But I thought people wanted to learn what we were bringing to them about the bill and the history. And once we did get past that first hearing, the conversations were freer. More people wanted to talk about it. And um, our the resolution was written um, by Dr. Hermes, and there's so much great information in there. And there was just a lot of good information for people to find. And that's why we got a lot of collaboration and support. And even one of the legislators who gave me a difficult time at that hearing voted yes when it came time for his, not in that hearing, but in the House, he voted yes. So as the project grew, as people kept working, as Senator Saud and Representative Garibay negotiated and talked. They talked about the injustice. They talked about the continuation of these kind of injustices, as Dr. Hermes is telling us about some of the later instances. There's also such attacks happening right now in over 60 countries. So this conversation is just an important one, and it's going to be ongoing. And it will be ongoing right now. You've been listening to Sarah Jack and Dr. Catherine Hermes. They'll be sticking around, and we'll continue this conversation after a quick break. You can also join us. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us to discuss the history of Connecticut's WIS trials and some news research on when they occurred is Dr. Catherine Hermes. She's a publisher and executive director for the Connecticut Explored magazine. And we also have Sarah Jack, who is the co-founder of the Connecticut WIS Trial Exoneration Project. Um, Kathy, we touched on this a little bit in the previous conversation, but can you share some of your new research uh, with us? Because, you know, here in Connecticut, I think we generally know that witch trials have lasted about 16 years-ish. How did you discover that this practice of accusation and shunning actually lasted much longer than 16 years? (laughs) I have to say it really surprised me. I was um, working on another project for the Ancient Burying Ground Association to look at people of color who were buried there. And so I was looking through the Hartford County court records, which have never been published or um, digitized or anything like that. And I get to the bottom of a box. I open the Dr. Williamson versus Samuel Howard lawsuit. And now my memory is that it was in a separate envelope that I found this single piece of paper. And as I unfolded it, I saw the word witch. So, of course, I look at it very carefully. (laughs) And Susanna Howard was a 16-year-old girl who was giving testimony in the court case involving her father. And what she was testifying to was that the doctor was, had said to her and two of her um, teenage associates, her sister and a friend, that he had spoken with the devil, he'd gone into a circle, read from a book, and the devil appeared, and he wrestled with the devil, essentially. And he also said that he could bewitch a witch and that he had, in fact, bewitched creatures. So this was very startling to read, especially because it took place in 1716, so decades after witches had been, you know, were not a legal thing anymore. Um, And... Of course, it wasn't surprising that belief in witches persisted after the trials. But what surprised me was this, these three teenage girls standing up against a doctor who was in some ways prominent. Uh, so I did try to do research on the doctor, and I found that he was a friend of John Reed, who was the crown attorney, the person who represented the crown in um, you know, criminal cases and cases involving the colony. And he was also treating a number of prominent people in Hartford, like John Bunce, who owned the tavern, a tavern where sometimes court cases were actually heard. Um, so, So this was brave on their parts in one way, but very reminiscent of Salem, where most of the accusers were teenage girls and their accusations were against prominent people rather than, um, you know, people who were down and out. And so especially with what you just said, I feel like there's such a range of accusations. You got you got sort of devil sitting on my chest. You got sort of ghosty sort of um, situations. You know, can you explain that range? And was this similar to what was documented in, in the 1600s? You know, those years mm-hmm. that we tend to be a bit right. more familiar with? Yeah, there. Are, I mean, there are certain tropes. So the um, the specter of the witch sitting on one's breast or sitting on one's body and then doing something that causes pain is what we find in testimony from the 17th and then now the 18th century. Um, The teenage girl 
issue where, you know, they feel emboldened to um, accuse someone of witchcraft, especially during an outbreak of sickness, is, again, something we see throughout um, witchcraft accusations. And so I think there's also the idea of settling New England and from there seeing women who fraternized with indigenous people as witches. Is that something that you agree in terms of fraternization with indigenous people being one accusation, say? We we have some evidence that that's the case. So, for example, Catherine Harrison, who was um, <coughs> accused in 1663 in Wethersfield, um, had a lawsuit with Puwamskin, who was a Wangunk warrior. And um, uh, Puwamskin was married to the Sunk Squaw of Middletown. And they're involved in a court case over the swapping of some corn and a kettle. Um, so clearly she had some relationship with him because they're trading goods. Um, we also see that um, a number of the people accused in the Hartford Witchcraft Panic lived on the South Green, very near the South Meadow, which is where the wigwams were. And those wigwams were present on the South Meadow of Hartford well into the 18th century. So these weren't things that faded away. Um, the presence of Native people was all around. And and certainly colonists would have had day-to-day contact with them. And I shared earlier with, with you, Kathy, that I'm from the West Coast, so really learning about the Salem witch trials drove it home for me as I moved out to the East Coast. And we know that that the Salem witch trials specifically later affected more people overall. Now, why were more people accused in Massachusetts? Well, in Massachusetts, the the number of accusations just explodes during the Salem witch trials. And in 1686, the Massachusetts charter was abrogated. And the king created something called the Dominion of New England. It included Massachusetts, Plymouth, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, and later New York, and East and West Jersey. And this Dominion of New England suspended the charter governments to a certain extent. And there was one governor, Governor Andros. Now, he was expelled during the Glorious Revolution in 1689. This was critical for Massachusetts because their charter had actually been taken, whereas Connecticut hid its charter in the Charter Oak and preserved its charter government. Massachusetts had to close its courts. And so for several years, there were no courts open in Massachusetts that could hear any dispute of any kind. The first court to be opened under the new charter was the Court of Oyer and Terminer, which only heard witchcraft cases. And I think that is a big reason why you see this explosion in witchcraft accusations. Many witchcraft accusations were related to property disputes. And and so I think a lot of this, uh, you know, Boyer and Nissenbaum, for example, in Salem Possessed show how many of the Salem uh, witch trials were about property. And um, Carol Carlson in The Devil in the Shape of a Woman shows the same thing for Connecticut. So I think part of it is these closed courts in Massachusetts that raise the number there. Connecticut had its charter. Their courts were open. So they didn't have as big an explosion. 
I did not expect real estate to play such a <laughs> huge part of this. Yeah. And, and Sarah, uh, talking about Massachusetts, you also just launched the Massachusetts Witch Hunt Justice Project. Is it your hope that Connecticut will be become a model for Massachusetts? You know, what are your thoughts there? Absolutely. As um, we just heard, there is an outstanding number number of accused folks from the history of Massachusetts. There's over 217 people um, who have been accused in that colony over the century. There's been no official apology to any of the victims. There has been legislation that has acknowledged that the government was diluted as to witchcraft. Um, names were made right of those executed in Salem, but there were five victims executed in Boston decades before who have not been exonerated. And Kathy, we asked Sarah this question earlier in terms of reaction to the resolution. And as a historian, you know, what are your thoughts about about the role Connecticut is playing and these sort of moves that states are making in general to either exonerate or absolve the accused? I, I think it's a, a wonderful recognition that the history of women in particular is important to history in general and that these played a bigger part in our state than we had realized uh, or recognized in the past. Um, if we look at, just for example, the number of women who were executed during this period, they're executed for witchcraft or infanticide. And the number of executions drops off after witchcraft is removed and infanticide is downgraded um, in, in 1818. And so really very few women are executed today, even in states that have the death penalty. So just looking back at the colonial record, that's something you have to notice, how many women were being executed. And Sarah, what's your response to this? Yes, um, I I always really enjoy hearing Dr. Hermes' uh, perspectives, legal perspective, historic perspective. It's so insightful. I really hope people are listening and understanding all the layers to the female experience in our history here and how that's impacting modern women in the United States and across the globe. And well, you mentioned the globe, and we know that it's part of your mission to draw attention to how this practice is not history, but still very much a global issue. And of course, you just mentioned it now, but how much of a problem are witchcraft accusations today? You know, what are you seeing or what are you hearing? Um, we, it's very easy to hear what's going on if you know what to look for. I think a lot of us hadn't realized that the violence against women was often, there's lots of reasons why there's violence against women in other countries, but witchcraft fear, fear of sorcery um, is a big part of it in over 60 countries. There's advocates and organiza organizations working to get the word out, to educate the world on it, to try to intercede and um, work with the communities that have these hard, hard issues going on. It's a major problem. And Kathy, as we continue to talk about this and hearing all these experiences, you know, do you have any insight on this living legacy? Because clearly it's still very much alive. Most, you know, most cultures throughout history have had some belief in magic, 
and people who could harness that magic for good or evil. Um, the Native people in Connecticut, for example, did believe in what we would call witches, um, although their belief in the devil didn't exist, right? They didn't have, they didn't have a devil. Um, in, in many countries, I think what we see are people who are suspicious of women's power, and that continues to be a problem, especially where there are magical beliefs attached to it. And just a quick reminder for our listeners that you can join us. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We are going to take a quick call from Cassandra, who's calling uh, from Willimantic. Cassandra, you are on the air. Welcome to the show. Oh, maybe we do not have Cassandra, but that is okay, because we can still continue the conversation. I think we... Um, from both what, uh, Kathy, what you and Sarah have been talking about, there's been a lot of sort of parallels in the modern times. You know, what are some of the um, connections that you, you, are, you are drawing yourself um, from this history? Well, just think about the conversation we've been having here today where Beth Caruso came on and she talked about how women were supposed to be fertile and that women's fertility or lack of it um, was something on which they were judged. And then we think about the things that women were executed for, right? Witchcraft and infanticide. Um, and then we look at today how reproductive rights are being challenged and disputed and argued about um, and, of course, rescinded <laughs> in, in the recent court case, uh, the Dodd case. So I, I think what we see is that women are still being judged based on fertility and you know, women today live, women in the United States live very differently than colonial women. But at the same time, motherhood or lack of motherhood is still something on which a woman's worth is determined to a large extent, even self-determined, right? Many women feel that having a child is important or, you know, if they can't have a child, raising a child is important. So there's adoption. And these things are still stigmatized. And Sarah, we'll love to uh, pose the same question to you, also related to our caller, Cassandra's comment. I uh, just want to read it real quick. She said, I see strong parallels on the attacks on women over re reproductive rights then and today. The people that are restricting abortion are restricting women's health care. You know, Sarah, what are your thoughts of that? We use the word parallel, but it has struck me recently that it's more of a continuation. And there wasn't a break where that's the past mistreatment of women and taking power for them. And here it's creeping back. It's been a continuum. And we need to restore justice. And that, and that gives power back to people who have had it taken away from them. And also curious to hear from both of you. Let's start with you, Sarah, with this question is, we're having this conversation today for a reason. You know, why do you, what do you make of this sort of resurgence of interest in witchcraft today, Sarah? Oh, that's such, that's such a um, layered question. There is such a resurgence in it as a faith and as a practice. And I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks wonder how do these connect? And we find that they're really two separate pieces of the witch, 
but um, it's just, it's another part of that conversation that is rolling. Um, the witch can be a symbol of women taking back power, of taking care of nature, of ritual. Um, but also the, the symbol of a witch can be an old hag, someone who's dangerous, who causes us fear. And there's conversations happening around that. So clearly so many layers here. Kathy, what are your thoughts about this very important distinction that Sarah is making? Uh, I think it is a, a very good distinction. Um, I, the witch is a, is a powerful symbol. Um, in fact, the History Channel magazine has witches on the cover <laughs> uh, this month too. And I, and I do think this year witchcraft has been in particular, at the at the forefront of a lot of discussion, um, I'm not sure why this year, except for the fact that there have been these exonerations here in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and in Scotland, and so perhaps that's made it um, in the forefront of people's minds. Um, if I may deviate a little bit here, Go for it. I was a big fan of a television show called Dark Shadows. Mm. in the 1960s. And people who are my age will remember it. They raced home from school to watch it. And there was a witch in Dark Shadows named Angelique. And the other day I was in a pub, not drinking, I was having lunch. <laughs> and the waitress was named Angelique. And I asked her if she was named after that character. She said she was, that her father watched the show in Jamaica after it had you know, been on the air in the United States. Anyway, it was that very day that the actress who played Angelique, Laura Parker, passed away. Wow. And uh, I wanted to give a, a shout out because I think for a lot of my generation, the image of the witch was between the Wizard of Oz and the Wicked Witch of the West and Laura Parker, who was so stunningly beautiful, <laughs> but so evil that, you know, that is what our picture of the witch is kind of in popular culture. And witches have been popular ever since Dark Shadows. A number of television shows feature witch characters. And, and yet none of that is historically accurate. And so I recommend that people do read some of the wonderful books that have been produced on witchcraft in the last decade. So we got about less than two minutes here, but still want to pose this question to you too, Sarah, as we are talking about distinguishing the different witch symbols and also our pop culture and understanding this chapter in history. You know, what are your thoughts with that, Sarah? Yeah, I think that there's a lot to learn there. I think people need to have an open mind and understand we have these different versions of her. Who is she when she's our image of power? Who is the woman who was executed. And what does witchcraft mean to people today? And want to get some final thoughts from both of you, starting with you, uh, Kathy, you know, anything that you would like to tell our listeners that we didn't talk about today? Well, I, I hope that people will take a look at Connecticut Explored's three articles and realize the importance of the law, both then and now in the history of witchcraft. And will understand that the law is a very powerful, violent tool that can shape behavior, belief systems, and now, I think, um, qualities of mercy. Mm. And Sarah, got about a minute here. Any final thoughts? 
I would like to thank everybody who has worked on the Connecticut witch trial history over the decades, the wonderful research and books that have been done, the talks and the advocating that happened during the exoneration project and that are continuing as we seek a state memorial for the state of Connecticut. There currently is not a state memorial and the project is continuing and we would love to have people continue to be involved with us so that we can make that happen. Thank you so much for that. And for our listeners, you can find more information on this chapter of Connecticut's history on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live, including an interactive map and trail. Uh, Sarah Jack, co-founder of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And also Dr. Catherine Hermes, who's the publisher and executive director of the Connecticut Explorer magazine. Thank you for being with us this morning. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.